and welcome to New Books in Secularism. This is your hostess, Annie Sipukaya. Today we are talking to Victor J. Stanger, author of God and the Folly of Faith, The Incompatibility of Science and Religion. Dr. Stanger is a retired elementary particle physicist and author of 11 books, including the 2007 New York Times bestseller, God, The Failed Hypothesis, How Science Shows That God Does Not Exist. His most recent book is God and the Atom, which just came out in April of this year. His website can be found at www.colorado.edu slash philosophy slash V Stanger. Good afternoon, Dr. Stanger. Well, hello. Hello. Um, so today we're talking to you about your book, um, God and the Folly of Faith, The Incompatibility of Science and Religion. Uh, so to start off, could you tell us a little bit um, about yourself and how you came to write this book? Okay, well, I'm a retired professor in uh, uh, physics. I spent a long career at the University of Hawaii doing research in particle physics and uh, cosmology. Mm-hmm. And uh, I retired there from in the year 2000, moved to Colorado. And uh, while I'm here in retirement and I'm continuing another career I had, which is writing books, and I've, I've now written uh, uh, 12 published books. The one that you're talking about was my previous one. I have a, a new one that just came out called God and the Atom. So uh, uh, that's that's where it stands. Right. So in terms, in terms of this book, um, you pretty much say that science is incompatible with religion. Yes. Um, what about the scientists that, and you do talk about them, the scientists that um, that say that they do believe in God, even though they're still scientists? Well, I think that uh, people who uh, who believe in God, uh, who are scientists, are, are certainly have every every uh, uh, reason to to use their their beliefs to, to guide their lives and so on. But uh, basically they would have to divide their thinking into two parts, sort of compartmentalize their thinking, because it seems to me impossible to, on the one hand, have this uh, scientific attitude where you doubt everything, where you require uh, empirical proof, for for everything and and where nothing is final, where you have to admit the possibility that things could change, uh, and and that's a totally different uh, way of thinking than what I call the faith-based thinking, where where you believe in something. Uh, I don't know why, just because you you uh, have a tradition in your family, you've uh, uh, you've heard uh, tales of, from ancient times that you think might have something to do with reality. But really, when it comes down to it, this kind of faith-based thinking uh, has no no basis whatsoever because it's, it's, faith is, let me put it this way, faith is basically uh, a belief in in something uh, for which you have no evidence, for which you have no reason. Uh, you just believe it because you believe it. 
whereas uh, scientific thinking is, is based on observation and evidence and uh, rational analysis of that evidence. And the two kinds of thinking are fundamentally incompatible. And, and if, what it really comes down to is a person who is religious believes that somehow there's another channel to uh, their knowledge, uh, to another way to obtain knowledge of reality besides just observing you, that the human brain is somehow tuned into something greater and, uh, and, and, and so they can, they can communicate outside of the realm of science. And that's, that's a legitimate idea, but the trouble is it's never been verified. There's never been any uh, case where uh, someone who has had a mystical experience has come back with with some knowledge, some evidence that can be later tested. So while it's it's a, a, a hypothesis that uh, people make, namely that you can learn about reality without observing it, uh, it hasn't been borne out by the historical facts. Right. Yeah, well, actually, it's interesting because uh, what a lot of people say is, well, you can't prove with evidence that God doesn't exist. Um, but you say that actually absence of evidence can be evidence for absence. Could you explain that a little bit? Yes, that's, that was the key to the book I wrote back in 2007, uh, God the Failed Hypothesis, that, that actually made the New York Times bestseller list. And the idea was this. You often hear people say, well, uh, absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence. And even Carl Sagan uh, used that expression a lot. And, and he, was, he was an atheist. But I argued in that book that there's certain kinds of evidence that uh, if it's not there, then you could take that absence of that evidence as, as evidence for, for absence. For example, you know, if you... Uh, uh, had a theory that there were elephants in Rocky Mountain National Park. Uh, you could test that by, uh, by going out and looking, and, and, and uh, if you didn't find any droppings or crushed uh, grass or any, any kind of sign of elephants, I think at some point you would decide that the absence of evidence uh, in that case was evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. That mm -hmm. uh, elephants don't exist in Rocky Mountain National Park. Right. Um, yeah. So essentially, um, what a lot of people I think argue is that somehow religion or the supernatural cannot be is not in the realm of science, and therefore science has nothing to say on it. Um, so essentially, you're saying, well, why not? Why, why isn't it? Why can't we apply science to that? No. Um, and and if there's no if there's no concrete evidence of the supernatural, can we then just let it go as a theory, like you would any other theory for which you have no evidence? Yes, you hear that a lot, even among scientists, even among the National Academy of the National Academy of Science, for example. Uh, they did a poll uh, a few years ago now maybe 10 years ago, but it's probably still true, that said that the only 7% of the members of the National Academy of Science believed in a personal God. Yet they've made mm -hmm. public statements, official statements, 
that uh, science has nothing to say about God, has nothing to say about the supernatural, and this is what I dispute, because while, of course, it's true that you can't use the methods of science to to uh, tell us uh, what God, what God, the nature of God is, and so on, uh, or any kind of uh, a realm of reality outside of the physical world, I agree with that, but if there is a, a God, if there is any kind of a supernatural force out there that has effect on the world, that it's, that uh, uh, you know that uh, created the universe, for example, there should be evidence for that, and, and that uh, answers prayers, uh, controls events on on Earth. Uh, that there should be evidence for that, and and uh, people have looked for such evidence. And in fact, uh, right under the noses of the National Academy of Sciences. There have been uh, uh, major scientific institutions uh, that have searched for evidence, searched for prayer, for example, evidence of prayer. Institutions like Harvard and Duke and uh, Mayo Clinic have, have made such searches, and that's perfectly good science to look for evidence for something. They haven't found any, but they might have. They might have found evidence, in which case we would have uh, an, uh, a scientific case for the existence of God or some other kind of uh, spirit beyond the physical world, but I'm saying that uh, that hasn't happened. Our minds are open to uh, it happening in the future. If it happens in the future, I'll change my mind if I see the evidence, but right now, after thousands of years, there is just nothing that you can point to that that constitutes uh, uh, evidence for God. Yeah. It does seem like whenever... Um whenever the supernatural is held to a scientific standard, then those that support the supernatural argue that science has nothing to say about it. But if, if by chance, if science were somehow to support it, um, they would be jumping at down saying that science, you know, um, Oh, sure. And they support it. Kind of like the, the, I think it was James Randi who offered, uh, I don't know, a million dollars for um, any, uh, a psychic or medium who was able to, you know, to mm-hmm. actually prove their their abilities um, under scientific conditions. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I remember when he first set that up. I was one of the people who who uh, pledged a thousand dollars money. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure I'm still being held. I will be held uh, uh, liable for that if it happens because he's, he seems to have accumulated quite a bit since then. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah, nobody has really taken him up on it since that time. So, well, maybe they have. Uh, I, I don't follow that that closely, so I'm not. I'm not sure that. I'm sure he gets plenty of requests, mm-hmm. and uh, people complain that well, you know, he's setting it up according to his rules. But that's not true. If you look at the protocols that he has set up, they're perfectly legitimate uh, uh, scientific protocols. Uh, and uh, many times the people who he has tested have agreed to them. They say, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll easily pass that test. And, of course, they, they, they never have. Yeah, yeah. You say that we have to distinguish faith from trust. What is the difference between those two? Yeah, that's a good question because uh, this is exactly what I hear a lot. And some of the people in the book that I've quoted, some of the theologians that I've quoted have made this same statement, that, namely that, well, uh, science is based on faith, too. Mm-hmm. You have to have faith that the world is rational. You have to have uh, faith that uh, the method of science works. 
And isn't that faith? And I say, no, that's not faith. That's more like trust. We trust scientific method. We trust the rational way of looking at the world because our experience tells us that it works. If it didn't work, we wouldn't do it. If science didn't work, we wouldn't do it. Religion doesn't work, but we still do it. And that's the difference between between faith and and trust. You trust your your doctor because uh, you have evidence uh, from your own experience that he's helped you get over uh, various uh, illnesses and so on. So you have trust in that. You have trust in medical science, uh, uh, whereas uh, I think a lot of people have too much trust in alternative medicine, for example, which, uh, which doesn't bear up under under scrutiny. So that's a false trust. And I think faith and, and religion is that kind of false trust because it really does not uh, bear up under uh, scrutiny. Mm. Although you do say that the conflict between science and religion should not be seen as a conflict between reason and unreason. Why is that? Right, because, you see, if you go back uh, through the history of uh, both um, Christianity and Islam, uh, not so much uh, the, the Eastern religions. They didn't rely so much on, on, on reasoning. But uh, the, the early Christian theologians, people like uh, St. Augustine, people uh, you know, Thomas Aquinas, and if you go into the Middle Age period called the Golden Age of the Islamic Empire, you'll find that uh, there were some very wonderful scholars uh, who uh, were able to save a, a lot of Greek and Roman learning uh, when it was being frittered away in, in the dark ages uh, in, in Europe, when the, uh, the Catholic Church had had uh, such a tight control over everything. In any case, there, there were within these theolo- the, these theologies, the use, the use of reason, uh, and uh, but they were based on one fundamental difference with science, and that was while they all agreed that observation was important, uh, observation's role in the whole process was just to back up what they determined by reasoning from revelation. And see, again, it was that same difference that I pointed out earlier between religion and science. Uh, uh, they believed that uh, their holy books and, and uh, the uh, great uh, religious figures of the past did have this special channel to knowledge, uh, and, and that all that observation really could do was, was verify what was already established uh, by those uh, early sages. However, they did, the, the theologians in, in, in both Christianity and Islam did apply reasoned analysis to uh, to that framework, uh, to, to what was learned from from scriptures and so on. So, so that's why I say it's a mistake just to say and a lot of people do this. A lot of skeptics take this attitude that it's a, a, a battle between reason and and science, and I think that's uh, that's one that they can't 
back up because that's not the way history has, has, has shown it to be. Yeah, that's that's an interesting distinction because um, I've also always felt like um, people who say, well, it's about being reasonable um, or reason versus irrationality, but are human beings reasonable in essence anyway? Do you think they are? Well, for the most part, no, but uh, uh, we have developed uh, within within humanity, with, with uh, uh, the ability to reason, the ability to think critically, it's just not all, not all that widespread. That's what's the problem, but <laughs> eventually, uh, hopefully it will be. It's all a matter of, of education. That's where you, that's where you learn this in the, in pretty much in the first place is when you start uh, going to school and learning about things and finding that there are different uh, uh, viewpoints and, and uh, you have to ask uh, what supports any, any particular viewpoint. This, incidentally, is one of the music things I think about. This uh, idea that uh, you find in a lot of conservative uh, uh, states that they they, they want to pass legislation to have religion taught in schools, mm-hmm. and, and and that would be fine. That would be fine. But you know what they mean. They they mean to they, that the Bible should be taught in the schools and taught by people who pick out from the Bible the good stuff and leave out the bad stuff. Uh, yes. But if they were to really uh, teach comparative religion in an honest, fair, academic way, uh, I think a lot of families would clear kids out of their class because they would they would learn about some of the awful things that that God did in the Old Testament, for example. <laughs> right. If more people actually read the Bible, there probably wouldn't be as many Christians, yeah, maybe. That's, that's the point that I, that's the I, I often say that. I say, boy, if you read the Bible, you, you uh, please read the Bible, you know, and, and, but read all of it. Don't just take a Bible study class uh, where, where obviously they, they select out the good stuff. They cherry pick. Yes. Well, some people say that uh, science deals with the outer world of our senses and that religion deals with our inner world. What is wrong with that? Well, because science does deal with the inner world, too. I mean, what, what, what's going, what do you think neuroscientists do? They look at the brain. That's, that's our part of our inner world. And they, uh, uh, psychiatrists and so on. And so... That's fine, and, and incidentally, I, I think I have respect for for meditative the meditative techniques of of the Buddha and and other ancient sages uh, because they do uh, seem to have a positive effect on people, getting rid of their ego-centeredness for one thing. It's a good effect of of uh, at least that kind of meditation. I think the prayers that go on in Christian churches that do the opposite—they tend to make you more and more self-centered. Uh, but that—that's all fine. But the question is, and here's where the disagreement that I would have with with uh, most Buddhists, for example, uh, people believe that meditation is actually telling you something about the real world outside of our head. Mm-hmm. The, the universe outside, something outside, and, and again, there's no evidence for that, which there could be. 
it could be evidence for that. It's in principle possible that somebody thinks of something that no one else has ever thought of and couldn't have just been in his head and later gets verified. That's uh, uh, That could happen, but it, it never has happened. Right. Where are we these days in terms of the conflict between evolution and intelligent design? Are we going forward at all, or is that kind of at a standstill in the United States? Well, uh, I tend to downplay that that conflict. It's still there, because you still have, again, these conservative legislatures uh, uh, wanting to see alternatives to evolution uh, taught in the school. And uh, it would be like, it's like teaching alternatives to gravity or alternatives to the atomic theory of matter and so on. Uh, they might exist, but they don't have the same standing that merits uh, uh, them to be taught in a, in a science class. But you see, I'm not worried because I know from my own experience in academia, there's no way that uh, that I could foresee that that the public is going to tell biology professors what to teach in in, in uh, their courses in the university. And, and the only thing that's bad about not teaching evolution in the schools is, is that the kids are not being well prepared then to uh, uh, to be able to learn more about it, learn about biology, learn about medicine when they go when they go to college. Then that's that's the that's the uh, disadvantage, but uh, and, and then we usually have to work against that. But I don't see it as the great threat uh, to uh, uh, science that uh, many people do. That's why there are so many. That's where a conflict exists between uh, what are called the new atheists, and I, I wrote a book about that called the new atheists. Uh, and and uh, the old atheists who were more accommodating, and the old atheists say, well, we have to work with moderate believers and so on, uh, mm -hmm. to, because uh, we want to make sure that evolution is, is taught in the schools. And while mm -hmm. I have sympathy with that, the new, other new atheists, people like Richard Dawkins has talked about this, uh, sure we have sympathy with that, but we, we think it's more important to establish... Uh, the the validity of of evidence based thinking over faith based thinking we we for magical thinking we don't think that uh, uh, we should just uh, ignore the the negative strong negative effect of magical magical thinking on on society. See it especially in, in this country because there is so much of it in this country, and we see how it is holding us back. It's holding us back uh, uh, from uh, solving a lot of serious problems that the world's facing. Just to think about global warming and about overpopulation and, and all these many problems that would that are really being held back mainly because of, of uh, faith-based uh, magical thinking. Right. Um, are you also of the belief that uh, that liberal Christians are, in a way, part of the problem because they, even though they're they're not fundamentalists, they support that kind of magical thinking? Exactly. You see, this is something that 
another thing that I that I uh, I point out, and it's based on data, based on surveys, and uh, there'll be organizations such as the National Center for Science Education, which is a very much of an accommodationist organization, and the National Academy of Sciences. All these are I, I call accommodationist uh, atheist organizations. Uh, you know, they they seem to argue that uh, we just have to go along along with this. But uh, they the fact is I, the, the point I'm trying to make. The fact is is that surveys show that those moderate Christians and Catholics who will tell you, yes, I believe in evolution, when you explore exactly what they mean. Mm-hmm. What they mean is they believe in God-guided evolution. Mm-hmm. And God-guided evolution is not Darwinian evolution. God-guided evolution is another form of intelligent design. And so when you add it up, you look at the numbers, you will find that the number of Americans who don't believe in God-guided uh, who, who I'm sorry, who uh, believe in non-God-guided evolution, who believe in evolution not guided by God, but basically by random Darwinian processes, is about the same fraction of Americans that are non-believers, or at least not affiliated with any any religion. Which means that the Christians who are left over, who say uh, they believe in evolution, really don't. They're really not in the in the the group, and that has to be pointed out because uh, again, yeah, that's a very common misconception. Because I would say that even probably most Catholics who are liberal actually pride themselves on saying, "Well, we don't." The Catholic Church doesn't have a problem with evolution, but like you say, you ask them, you ask them do you believe right. that it was non-God guided? And the first thing they'll tell you, "Of course not. God behind right. everything." And if you're talking about Muslims, you don't find a single Muslim who uh, <laughs> believes in evolution. Right. Yeah. So, so in a way, I guess, um, would you say that perhaps the more conservative Christians are, in a way, easier to deal with in the sense that their position is much more clear? Yeah. Whereas, well, listen, I, I, I say it's also uh, more honest. Yes. Yeah. There's a false compatibility. I guess, uh, an illusion of compatibility. They they know that evolution and religion are incompatible. Mm-hmm. Now, their answer is, well, since my religion is right, evolution must be wrong. And so, therefore, right. we must change evolution. We should make evolution a, a, a science within some kind of Christian framework that was the whole thing that was behind the intelligent design movement to begin with, to, to try to Christianize science. Uh, of course, it didn't get any place, and it won't. But uh, the evangelicals uh, know that. They, they say, uh, you can't make the two compatible, whereas the uh, moderate Christians are are just wrong when they say they can be made compatible. Mm-hmm. Um, could you explain the difference to us between reductionism and holism and how that relates to the conflict between science and religion? Yeah, that's, that's actually 
<laughs> a complicated story, but okay. basically, we in, in science we tend to reduce things to parts. Okay. Mm-hmm. And the ultimate reduction into parts is, is the reduction into elementary particles, which has been always my field, you know, that was my field of research for 40 years. Uh, and so naturally I tend to be a reductionist just by my, just by my training, my background. Um, now they'll tell you, people will tell you, well, you know, you don't derive everything. You can't derive everything from the equations of Elementary particles physics. Even even physicists who are not elementary particle physicists, physicists who do what's called condensed matter physics, like solid state physics and so on, they don't derive their uh, principles from elementary particles. They derive them from their own methods and observations, and so on up through chemistry, through uh, biology, through neuroscience, even sociology, all of these, every field of science, people basically develop their own uh, methods and, and uh, principles. And so what, is, what they say is that these principles are what are called emergent principles, that they emerge from, from something more fundamental. And uh, the reductionist doesn't uh, object to that because we know from our own experience that you can take uh, just an example of thermodynamics. Thermodynamics was a science that was developed in the 19th century totally as a practical science to understand heat engines and things of that sort that were coming along with the scientific revolution. And it, it developed into quite a remarkable, uh, precise, uh, very uh, highly technical mathematical science. And then it was shown that you could derive, long toward the end of the century, it was shown that you could derive all of thermodynamics and all of fluid dynamics, for that matter, from just particles bouncing around <coughs> and interacting with one another. So that was an example of emergence. It, it did, uh, these, these principles, that operated at a higher level uh, came from a lower level. Okay. Now you can't do that all the way up, and that, and uh, I fully admit that. And so uh, science doesn't uh, try to do that. But that doesn't mean that those new principles that are discovered uh, have any uh, still do not arrive from from what happened beneath. And again, to make the long story short, the whole is still equal to the some of its parts. It's not more than the sum of its parts, except in a, in a rather trivial way. Okay. Um, well, you also say that one common thing that people do is that um, we attribute agency to events that are actually random, um, and that many apologists argue that complexity cannot be random, but you say that actually it can. Yes, that's a, a major misunderstanding also, and I think is uh, something that you know, the average person also finds surprising, and that is you think that for something to be complex, that it had to be assembled mm-hmm. uh, or designed in some way. somehow from something more yeah. complex. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in fact, if you look 
at uh, many examples of science. Uh, the Darwinian evolution is one of them, but even the simplest things like you know, the freezing of water and, and so on. If you if you would take a, just a a ball of uh, water vapor, and it was someplace out in space so that uh, you didn't have any forces on it, and there was no heat, uh, that water vapor would uh, first uh, condense into liquid water and then condense into ice. It would become increasingly more complex because obviously liquid, liquid water has some structure to it, and then ice has crystals and and, and, uh, and so on, and, and, and that's a very natural process. In fact, that is the natural process in, in science, from, from more complex, more symmetric systems to, uh, from less complex, I'm sorry, less complex but more symmetric kinds of a system, such as a, a ball of uh, random moving molecules of, of, of water, uh, to a, a solid structure. Uh, of uh, higher complexity. That's the natural tendency of things. So I guess is is that part of kind of um, the human tendency to see, uh, to always see pattern even when there isn't one? Yes, see that, that probably had survival value, at least at one time. Mm-hmm. I, I talk about that. About uh, there, there have been. I'm, I'm again. This is not my uh, idea. A, a lot of people have written about this, and I give some of the references in the book. Mm-hmm. How it, when humans were uh, walk, you know, lived lived in, in forests and had to work their way through down a some forest path. They had to be on the lookout for predators, and so some rustled grass uh, ahead of them, they might not uh, see a predator, a tiger, or something behind there, but they certainly lived to, to uh, walk another day if, if it were a tiger, and they, and they were able to take evasive action. So you do tend to for survival value, and you see this throughout the animal kingdom, I mean, uh, all animals, you just watch the birds out your back door, and you'll, you'll see the same sort of thing, the squirrels, and so on. I watch them all the time. And and, and that's exactly what they do. They, they hear something, they hear a rustle or something, and they right away, they scoot, or they fly away. You know, right. nothing, nothing is there, because they're, they're following this instinct of, uh, of, of this built into for survival. So we're all seeing agency that's not there, and uh, we do it too because we're not that far from from living in the in the forests. Now the trouble is, it does us more, more harm probably than good now, and uh, that's the situation we find ourselves in, where it'd be good to get rid of it to overcome it. And we can overcome it because we can over, overcome. And people sometimes say you can't overcome evolution, but you can. You can overcome it by intellect. That's what intellect does. Enables to overcome our animal instincts. Well, and that's kind of related to um, to Dawkins' analysis of uh, the selfish gene, isn't it? That we can that our genes might be selfish, but that doesn't mean that we necessarily have to be. 
Yeah, well, that's that's not quite the same story, but I guess it's okay. related. Uh, there, the uh, idea is that we can be altruistic, and altruism and good moral behavior uh, has has uh, can have an evolutionary basis, and uh, so uh, if you're goal in life is the survival of your your genes uh, uh, and your own individual survival is not so important. You certainly see that with with uh, parents, with their children. They give up, readily give up their lives for their children, although I wonder about some people today whether they would do it or not, but that, at least that was the, the, <laughs> the attitudes at one time. Right. Something that you mentioned in your book that I found really surprising um, that I didn't know as a person who doesn't really have a scientific background, um, you said there's no difference in composition between living and non-living matter? The difference? I said there's no difference. No difference. Um, I think you mentioned at one point there's no difference in composition between living and non-living matter. Yes, yes that's right. That's right. It's all made of the same stuff. Oh, okay. So special... There's no special living force, which again is a common belief that life has has, uh, has something in it, uh, uh, some vital force. Qi, it's called in Chinese. Uh, every every culture seems to have had some kind of notion of that sort. Uh, spirit, breath. Spiritus is the word for breath. In uh, Latin, and, and so all throughout history, people have associated life with some kind of special form of uh, or substance of reality, and, and yet there's again no no evidence for that. I mean, you take a part of any biological molecule, and all you'll find is is atoms, and you take a part of the atoms, and you'll find nuclei and electrons and you take away to take apart the nuclei and you'll find quarks uh, and uh, you take a, do the same thing to a stone and you'll find the same parts no difference it's just a matter of organization like a living thing has this high level of organization that enables it to, to do the things it does just like a computer it can do all kinds of wonderful things because it's so complex and so organized I was just watching today on television on Anderson Cooper. There was a woman who came on and started to talk about how she had died for nine minutes and she had seen heaven. So there is a a part in your book where you talk about near-death experiences. Um, How do you feel about those? Well, yeah, I've written a lot about that, actually. Mm. There was also a neurosurgeon who wrote a best-selling book called Proof of Heaven. That was on the bestseller list for a long time because he related his near-death experiences. And there was another book, uh, uh, Heaven is for Real, that must have been on the first on the bestseller list for a year or more, uh, about a, a, a child who had gone to heaven and had come back a popular subject. And there, there is a whole uh, area of study of near-death experiences with, with quite legitimate uh, uh, researchers uh, trying to study the phenomenon. There's no doubt 
that there is such a phenomenon that people do die, not that die, people do go off uh, into uh, these uh, near-death states where they might have a flat EEG and so on. And then, and then we, since uh, we now have such excellent uh, recovery technologies that they brought back and they relate these experiences, and these experiences are very real to them. Uh, and so, of course, they, they're convinced that they, they had some kind of a supernatural experience. Usually they see a tunnel of light and they imagine uh, something down at the other end of the tunnel. Sometimes they see Jesus. If you're Buddhist, you'll see Buddha. You know, you'll see whoever <laughs> you happen to uh, believe in. And, That's convenient. <laughs> and uh, But there's actually no evidence, first of all, that they even had that experience at the time that they were brain dead. See, this is a point that the surgeon was trying to make. Oh, my brain was dead. My brain was dead. There was no possible way that I could have been dreaming this stuff because my brain was so inactive. Well, he doesn't know that. He can't prove that. How, how, how does he know that he didn't have that experience uh, uh, before he his, his uh, brain stopped or after? Brain stop. And furthermore, you know, the EEG, the flat EEG does not show that the, uh, the total brain is shut down. It just, it just detects the, the electromagnetic waves from the outer layers. It doesn't say anything about what's going on deep inside the brain. So, uh, and again, the argument I always use in all these cases is, okay, you, you, uh, I'm sure you're, uh, you're serious. I'm sure you're very moved by your experience. But what did you learn? That uh, did you tell us something that you you uh, could not have known ahead of time that you now know? And no one's ever been able to do it. You know, they've done experiment, experiments now uh, where they'll because common a common experience uh, or during the near death experience is something that's also has another name. It's called the out of body experience (OBE), where where the patient floats up above the table and looks down and makes all kinds of uh, uh, observations about who's in the in the uh, operating room and, and uh, you hear so many stories about this uh, and uh, they consider that proof. So they've tried to do controlled experiments where they will put uh, some some uh, complicated phrase or number random number on a shelf, high shelf up above the room, out of the sight of the person on the table and out of the sight of the other people in the room because you've got you to you be very careful in these types of experiments that there isn't some other way that the person could have learned uh, uh, what the, what the uh, number was. So if the person then floats up above the operating table, it should be able to look down on that, on that uh, uh, shelf and, and see the number, and that has failed at least a dozen times when they've tried that experiment. Oh, so that has been done, yeah. Yeah. And it, yeah. It's, it's hard. I have to admit that the researchers do have a difficult time doing controlled experiments because, after all, you're in an operating room, and the operating room staff is, is not there to serve your, your needs to provide a controlled experiment. They're not. Sorry. <laughs> They're trying to save the person's and life. So they have to be really, it has to be a totally non-obtrusive thing. 
that they don't participate in in any way. And so uh, that's why it's difficult. You really can't do the kind of controlled experiments that physicists can do in an accelerator where there's nobody's nobody's uh, being operated on at the same time. Right. There are no family members outside. Right. Yeah. Um, to finish off, my favorite uh, part of your book is where you say the plural of anecdote is not data. Um, could you explain that a little bit for us? Because I thought that was a very um, clever statement. Well, yeah, yeah. You see, this is, again, a common belief among uh, the non-scientifically inclined mm-hmm. that an anecdote is evidence. So someone says uh, they uh, had this particular experience, uh, then why don't you believe me? I mean, uh, and it's because there's so many ways that uh, that experience could not be objective. First of all, a person could be making it up. You can't accuse a person of lying. I realize that, but that's let's face it. If a person said they saw something, they could be lying. But what's, that's one. That's certainly a simpler explanation than sure. than uh, say than one in which they experienced something beyond reality, beyond beyond physical reality. So uh, there are a lot of things that have to be ruled out. And so you can't just, you just can't pile up a lot of anecdotes, and that's what the ND, the uh, near-death experience database consists 99% of, is these anecdotal stories that uh, can't be verified. Uh, that's why, you, again, you have to do a controlled ex- experiment. Right. Yeah, it's um, it kind of reminds me of some people talk about that as being evidence for Jesus uh, having resurrected or being the son of God, because he could either only be either he's the son of God or he was lying. And some people seem to think that it's actually more likely that he's the son of God than that he was lying. Um, which I always found to be very interesting. But. I don't think he ever said he was the son of God. Did, well, yeah, I don't know, but I mean, yeah. But yeah, you could go, go to the disciples who claim that they saw him uh, uh, after he died. You know, uh, uh, they're just stories, or that's so they're all just anecdotes. There's there's not no evidence there. It's hard to go back two thousand years and say that anything that happened there is just, is historical. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, there's lots, you can argue pretty strongly that there's very little that is historical because there were historians writing at the time, living in Jerusalem, Roman historians who were there at the time and didn't, and, had, and wrote about uh, the activities of the Jews in Jerusalem and, and uh, the activities of the Romans there and, and, and not mentioned a word about uh about Jesus or any of those events concerning the crucifixion and the resurrection and so on. That's why I like I like to go look at more recent examples like Mormonism in particular, where we do have uh, a lot of evidence of, uh, because that happened much more recently. And you can look at the the claims that uh, they've made and compare it with archaeological evidence and uh, uh, historical evidence and and, and see. Uh, how uh, how completely uh, made up the whole thing is. Right, yeah. It's easier to, 
to match it up with uh, the evidence, even though it's incompatible. Um, yeah. So, um, okay, so this book is called uh, God and the Folly of Faith, the Incompatibility of Science and Religion. And you said you have a new one that has just come out. Um, and that is about what? The new one. Yes, that's called God and the Adam. It's basically a history of the notion that everything is made of particles. It goes back to Democritus and through uh, Epicurus and Lucretius and, uh, and so on, up through the, right through the uh, scientific revolution. Atomism was very, very basic to the ideas of Newton and Galileo. Uh, and then it carried on into the 19th century with the discovery of the periodic table of the elements and so on. And then the 20th century with atoms having a structure, uh, nucleons, electrons, and on to the standard model. And finally, with the discovery of the Higgs boson confirming this whole uh, picture of, uh, of nature being composed of particles. And the message that the place where God comes in, as I point out right from the beginning, mm-hmm. uh, at the time of, uh, of Democritus and so on, uh, while they technically uh, said, talked about the gods, uh, it was pretty clear that the, the, the gods, their view of the gods, but the gods were just made of the same atoms <laughs> as everything else, and, and and were not responsible for creating them, and and didn't, and in particular, did not have anything to do with them. Did not, uh, you know, why why would they? Uh, if they already lived in perfect uh, happiness, why would they have to interfere with the lives of humans? And so, uh, so that was their view of. Uh, of the gods, and, and it was basically an atheistic view, and uh, this view of everything being made of matter and nothing else, no evidence for any supernatural stuff of any kind, uh, is uh, the foundation of, of science today. Um, Dr. Stenger, thank you so much for being with us today and talking about your book. Well, thanks for having me. I enjoyed talking to you. You have been listening to an interview with Dr. Victor J. Stenger, author of God and the Folly of Faith, The Incompatibility of Science and Religion. This is your hostess, Annie Sapukaya. Thank you for listening to New Books in Secularism.